It is a privilege to once again be here with you. I am still with Barnabas Aid and proud to be a part of that, but they've asked me to minister the word this morning. I got the note that says, anything but missions. That's like asking LeBron James to give up his basketball, but that's okay. My favorite thing to preach about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talked about the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. So if you have your Bible, would you turn in your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And our text for the message this morning will come from verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Hear now God's word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they give according to their means, as I can testify, and really beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen. Our Father, we come to you today. We ask for your spirit to work through your word in our hearts. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Lord, speak through me, I ask. Help me to lift up Jesus in all of his glory and honor and majesty. And may you be praised and glorified from our gathering. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In this section, Paul is urging the Corinthians to follow through on a previous commitment to give money to the needs of the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. He made clear in his previous verses that this is not a command. It's an opportunity to express the love of Christ to other believers. Now he describes how contributing to this gift is Christ-like. Jesus was rich and secure in the glory of heaven. He willingly became poor when he became a man, entering into the world of suffering and death and the flow of time on earth. He did this in order to die for the sins of his people so that they can be forgiven of their sin and one day experience the wealth and security of living in glory with God. In other words, Jesus demonstrated God's grace by willingly becoming poor so that the Corinthian Christians and all other Christians could become rich forever. Now, the Corinthians had an opportunity to perform an act of grace themselves that would follow the example of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And it seems that in the middle of this instruction, as one man said, he drops this theological gem. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
In the context, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to finish what they started. Apparently, a year before Paul penned the second letter to the church at Corinth, the church in that city promised to give generously to the poor. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul recalls their promise and prepares them for the forthcoming delegation to collect that offering. His words are not threatening or condemning, but motivating as he speaks about their readiness, their zeal, and their genuine, generous love. In fact, it's because of his confidence in their generosity that he encourages them in their giving. And one of the principal means of motivating to giving is Jesus' substitutionary death. In leaving heaven to suffer and die on earth, Paul likens Jesus' experience to that of giving up riches and becoming poor. And by speaking of Christ's death in the terms of rich and poor, Paul teaches and exhorts the Corinthians and us this morning, if we know the Lord, how to abound in the grace of giving. And may I say that includes more than just giving money. Scriptures make it abundantly clear that we're to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In verse 7 of this text, he says, as you have abounded in these other graces, add this to your grace list. You know, looking to Jesus is the greatest incentive, it's the greatest motivation, it's the greatest example to holiness and obedience for the child of God. If you need endurance, where do you look? You look to Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. If we have need for humility in a servant's heart, where do we look? We look to Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul is exhorting the believers in Philippi to humility and selflessness. He says in verses 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If we have need of faithfulness to God for a task that he's appointed to us, again, we look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, even Christ Jesus, who was faithful to the one who appointed him, even as Moses, Moses was faithful in all his house. So it seems to me it would only be consistent with God's revelation to use the Lord Jesus Christ as the greatest example to emulate, to imitate. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Or to the church of Thessalonica chapter 1, as he's commending them for the way they receive the word, he goes on to say, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Ronnie Floyd says this in regard to this subject, we should look to Jesus, his wisdom, and his power. He is our perfect example. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. That word example in the Greek is hupogramos, means to write something, to copy something. So, for example, if you were going to draw a picture of a stained glass window, you would find one and try to copy it or draw it just like it is. 
And God is saying to his people, I want you to copy my son in everything you do. So while it is true that Paul is setting forth the example of Jesus as the greatest example of what it means to give sacrificially for the glory of God, please again, don't confine this text only to money. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ in everything. Our challenge, our responsibility, and our privilege is to study Christ, to learn of him, to look to Christ with the eye of faith, to glory in the cross, etc. I was reminded that Christology, when you go to college, Bible college, or seminary, as I have, one of the courses you take is Christology, and you learn a whole lot about Christ. But a Christian is not to take that course and all the material, slap the book shut, put it on the shelf, and just quit learning about Christ. Learning of Jesus is a lifelong profession. And so as we learn of him and we learn who he is and what he's done, we're encouraged to imitate him. Tom Askell, who wrote in the table talk in 2017, kind of clarifies this for me. He said this, the goal of every Christian is to become like Christ. This is what God has in mind in one of the most beloved promises in the Bible. Perhaps one of the most famous, well-known verses is Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That word good there in view is explained in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The Apostle Paul emphasized what we might call a show-and-tell approach to discipleship in his own ministry. That's why he could say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He viewed as inherent in his own growth as a disciple the responsibility to help others grow, so he invited other Christians to follow him only as he followed Christ. And in this commitment, he tells us two things. First and foremost is his commitment to be an imitator of Christ. Now, granted, Jesus is more than just an example. There's many people who think Jesus is nothing but a good example for whatever. He's more than an example for us. And no one will ever be made right with God simply by trying to imitate him. Any devotion to Christ ending in salvation that does not arise out of a sincere faith in him of the Lord is misguided sentimentality. The second commitment, he says, that reality, however, should not keep us from fully appreciating the power of his, his example can be for us. Octavius Winslow rightly notes, there's no single practical truth in the word of God on which the spirit is more emphatic than the example which Christ has set for his followers to imitate. The church needed a perfect pattern, a flawless model. It wanted living embodiment of those precepts of the gospel so strictly enjoined upon every Christian, and God has graciously set them before us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jack Wellman tells us the whole character of the life of Christ of obedience to God's commandments shows us as his disciples how we're to live in this world. What is the command of Jesus in the gospels and to us today? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and... Follow me. David Platt <laughs> says that Jesus' call to follow him is more than an invitation to pray a prayer. A lot of people today who think that when they die, they're going to heaven because they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, and boom, it's all good. Well, let me tell you, when I was five years old, I walked an aisle, stood on the front pew. My father was a pastor, and I said all the right things because I knew all the right things. 
for 17 years as a lost sinner, I put on a good show, went to a Bible college, went out on the weekends and preached it, all those things. But by God's grace, one Tuesday night after a service at our church in a rainstorm, I was afraid to die. You know why? Because I knew that no matter what I had said and what I did on the inside, it was still the same. I was not a child of God. I'd never been changed. I'd never become a new creation in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus says, follow me, it's not lagging behind and just, hey, how are you doing, Jesus? We'll be there in a minute. It means to follow in his footsteps. Somebody else by the name of Jack Wellman said it's a radical change of lifestyle where we seek the kingdom above all things and be sure it will be painful and it will cost us. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're to imitate him. So do you want to have greater love for the brothers? Jesus said, John chapter 13, verse 34, no greater love has man than this. Then he laid on his life for his brothers and that's what he did. We are to cultivate the mentality of a servant because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We're to endure unjust suffering with patience, with the knowledge that this is part of our calling, as Peter tells us. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Paul was determined to live in accordance with God's revealed will, just as Jesus had done in his earthly ministry. He pursued Christ's likeness as a lifelong goal. And may I just say again, we never graduate from that study. Now, of course, he did this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so must we. But that's another sermon. That's another sermon. So to spur the Corinthians in this passage to live a life of giving, Paul leads us to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the highest motivation the greatest illustration to living what I call a life of giving. It's not every Thanksgiving time of the year. I usually try to remind those whom I have the privilege of addressing. It's not Thanksgiving. It should be thanks living. We give of our time, our talents, our words, our skills, our possessions, our finances, our mercies, our forgiveness. And the example of those things is found in Christ Jesus. And one of the many passages that sets forth this example is our text this morning. You know the grace of Jesus, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Charles Spurgeon says, Dear brethren, there's one by whom you hope you've been saved, one whom you call Master and Lord. If you just imitate him, you will abound in this grace as well. So the text is very simple. Three simple truths, and yet they're profound. Let me break it down for just a moment, if you'll if you bear with me. Number one, what he was. In this verse, Paul tells us what Jesus was. Now, he's talking about eternity past. That's almost an oxymoron, because eternity doesn't have a past and a future. But for us to understand, it's before time, before the world began. He tells us what he was. He was rich. Herb Hodges, pondering these words, was asking some questions and answering, and I found them very helpful. He said this, was he rich? How? In what way was he rich? Of what did his riches consist? What constituted his wealth? What made up his fortune? Can the inventory of his pre-existent state be itemized? What a great question. The inventory of his pre-existent state be itemized? He says, any effort to answer those questions sends the researcher on a giant quest through the Bible, and the outcome will stagger his imagination. 
Though thoughts may cascade, words fail in trying to describe the eternal riches of Jesus. So he says, I'll just try to make a few suggestions in the next few lines. However, these suggestions should not be minimized. It's like the Queen of Sheba. You remember Queen of Sheba went down to see Solomon? She said, man, I've heard about all your riches. Show me all you got. And when he got through giving her a tour of his kingdom and his riches, she stopped, took a deep breath and said, man, alive. I wasn't told the half of what you have. This is incredible. And as we study the riches of Christ, who he is, his character, his attributes, who he was before he came to this earth, his riches, it will stagger our minds as well. Well, Hodges goes on to answer, and I'm not going to deal with each of these, but he's a good Baptist pastor because he starts them all with the same letter. Alliterations are absolutely key to preaching. We're locked into three points on alliterations. He says this, he was rich in his person, in his place, in his power, in his possessions, in his praise, and in his pleasure. Each of those would be a wonderful study just to go through the scriptures and talk about the richness of Christ in these areas. So he was rich. And he became, and I want to emphasize that word, became for a moment. It is something he never was before. He was rich in all of these things, but he became. He condescended to become something he never was before. Ray Stedman comments, when Jesus had everything, when he was rich in power, when he had omnipotence at his command and could do all things in the universe, he became poor. He laid it all aside. He became powerless so that as he walked here among men, he said of himself one time, the son of himself can do nothing, absolutely nothing. It is the father that dwells in me. He does the work. Jesus became poor. When he was rich in love and had all the angels of heaven to adore him, continually bowing down, and as Isaiah tells us, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He laid it all aside and became poor and came to be the one of whom Isaiah said and wrote these words. He was despised and rejected of men and we esteemed him not. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. When he was rich in resources, when everything was his, Paul tells us in Romans 11 that of him and through him and to him are all things, though that be so. Yet he came so that he could say about himself, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He had no home. They had to borrow a manger in which he could be born. He even had to borrow a penny when he wanted to perform a miracle. He depended on others for his clothes. He went about with no certain dwelling place. And when he died, they laid him in someone else's tomb. He had no place, nothing of his own. Perhaps one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture is found at the close of one of the chapters in John's Gospel where John records these words. All his disciples left him and went to their own homes, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? He had no home. No home to go to. No place to lay his head. Isn't it strange that we in the West who call ourselves Christians seek to live as kings? But he who was the king of kings lived like a pauper. He gave it all up. Paul says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he entered into the poverty of human existence and absolutely had nothing back held, not even his own life. 
During his time on earth, Jesus owned nothing of what we would call material wealth. There's a phrase I keep hearing, and every time I hear it, I kind of cringe. The American dream. If I ask you to write that down, what is the American dream? Well, finances, bank accounts, a home, retirement, etc., etc., etc. There was a young man in law school. His name was Jones. And in his time of working in the, as a student at the law school, he had one professor who was a Christian. And throughout all three years, this professor observed Jones and had an interest in him and found out he wasn't a Christian. So on the last day before they were going to graduate and take the bar exam, he said, guys, I want to ask you a question. Jones, what are you going to do when you graduate? <laughs> professor, you know, me and Susie have been dating, and we're going to get married. That's good, Jones. Then what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to take my bar exam, and I'm going to find a law firm, and I'm going to really work hard. Oh, that's great, Jones. And what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to make lots of money. You know, going to have a boat and a car and all those things. That's good, Jones. Then what are you going to do? Well, like all Americans, I'm going to retire and enjoy all those things. That's fine, Jones. Then what are you going to do? I, I guess. I guess I'll die. Then, Jones... What are you going to do? Jesus had to borrow a place in which to be born, a house in which to sleep. I'm not advocating this morning that everybody go home and sell everything you got. That's not the issue. The issue is not having possessions. The problem is the possessions having us and having the wrong dream, having the wrong focus on what's really important. Jesus says where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. You want to know what's important to me? Yeah, I'm not going to let you. Look at my checkbook. You'll know what's important to me. Jesus had no place to preach. He had a boat. On a donkey, he had to ride. He had a room in which to eat his last supper, which was not his. He didn't have a cross to die on. And they borrowed a tomb in which to be buried. <laughs> I just goes on to say, and while he was here, his only pocketbook was the mouth of a fish. So he was rich, he became poor. Now why did he do that? So that, or for the purpose, for the sole purpose of those who were poor could become rich. That's spiritual poverty and spiritual riches. Jesus voluntarily went from riches to rags so that unworthy sinners could go from rags to riches. Now let me clarify something here. It must be made totally clear that there were some things in his heavenly riches that he did not give up. He could not give up the personal sinlessness of his character. He could not give up the love and compassion of his heart. He could not strip himself of essential deity, but he still became poor. His poverty in some measure was the reverse of his riches. David Schrock relates this, Christ impoverished himself to deliver sinners from the penalty of sin, which does in fact impoverish them. Truly, Christ's work on the cross guarantees freedom from suffering under the wrath of God, chiefly eternal suffering. In making himself poor, Christ came to identify with the poor, the downtrodden and the defeated, so that those who identify themselves with him through faith and repentance might enjoy grace and spiritual riches forever. Somebody said the rich are not always godly, but the godly are always rich. Please remember that. 
The rich are not always godly, but the godly are always rich. Oh, how true. Listen to these New Testament statements. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are recipients of the riches of the glory of his inheritance. We are rich in faith, and though we have nothing, Paul says, we possess all things. Read the New Testament, and you will see that first century Christians were joyfully aware of the enrichment of life that they had in Christ Jesus the Lord. All things are yours, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, even to the poor people in Corinthians 3, verse 1. He was rich. He became poor so that those who are spiritually poor, bankrupt, could have riches. Through his poverty, we receive the riches of the gospel. I've had the privilege of going to India a few times, and I've changed the way I end my sermons one of the things that I was training pastors, I mentioned in one of my sermon lessons, I said, you know what? Whenever I preach, I try to ask the question, so what? So what? After I got done, there's one fellow that every time I go, I see him. The first thing, I can't speak his language and he can't speak mine, but he knows two words. And that's so what? And we become the so what twins. So I'm going to ask you this morning, so what? Isn't that great truth? Jesus left heaven and his riches came to earth and took on the poverty so that we who were poor could be rich. What does that mean? Well, there's two applications this morning. Number one, if you're here, you have never believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are poor. Even if your last name is Bezos or all of the other whatever heirs they are now. You know, pretty soon it's going to be billionaires going to be giving in to trillionaire. You know, all that. By the way, You've never seen a hearse behind uh, a U-Haul behind a hearse, have you? So you may be like that. Maybe a lot of riches. Maybe you'll amass a lot of riches. But in Christ, we find true riches. And as we are born, we're born poverty-stricken. We're born bankrupt. We have nothing whatsoever to offer to God that we might have salvation. If that's you this morning, this little verse encapsulates the essence of the gospel. What does it say? Jesus, who's Jesus? The Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God. Jesus came, came where? To the earth. He was born as a baby. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. He was ascended into heaven and he's coming back again. This Jesus did what he did, left his riches, took on our poverty so that we could take on his riches and have life eternal and riches in heaven forever. All who receive him as their Lord and Savior will enjoy eternal riches in heaven forever. If you're a Christian this morning, I hope you haven't got past the point when you hear this kind of a message or something about Jesus that there's not something inside of you that doesn't say amazing. It's incredible. Oh, what love. The story is told. In the days of the American Revolution, there lived a Pennsylvania, a Baptist pastor by the name of Peter Miller. He was a man who enjoyed the friendship of George Washington. In that same city, there lived another man, Michael Whitman, who was an ungodly scoundrel who did everything in his power to obstruct and oppose the work of this pastor. On one occasion, Michael Whitman was involved in an act of treason against the government of the United States. He was arrested. He was taken to Philadelphia, some 70 miles away, to appear before General Washington. When the news reached Peter Miller, 
that this man, his enemy, was appearing on trial for his life before General Washington, Peter Miller walked a long 70 miles to Philadelphia to appeal for the life of this man. He was admitted into the presence of Washington because of his friendship. And when he came in, he began without delay to speak for the life of Michael Whitman. Washington listened to him, heard his story all the way through, and then he said, no, Peter, no, Peter, I cannot give you the life of your friend. Peter Miller said, my friend, my friend, this man's not my friend, he's my bitterest enemy. Washington said, what? You mean to say you walked 70 miles through the dust and heat of the road to appeal for the life of your enemy? Well, that puts the matter in a different light. I'll give you then the life of your enemy. And Peter Miller put his arm around the shoulders of Michael Whitman and led him out of the very shadow of death back to his own home, no longer his enemy but his friend. My folks, friends, Christian brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus did for us. Romans chapter 5 says that when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. I got a couple minutes and I want to close with this story from John MacArthur's ministry. I just love this story. A wonderful story was told many years ago about a Persian monarch. We would call him a king. And they would call him a shah. This particular shah reigned in Persia in a time of great splendor and magnificence. He lived in the midst of all the wealth and prosperity. But like, unlike lots of kings and shahs, he had a heart for people who were poor and common. So he decided on his own that he would dress himself as a poor man. He would descend from the lofty heights of his splendor down to the commonest man that he could find and try to make a friend out of him. And such a man was a man whose job it was to stoke fires and prepare fires that could be then put into little containers and taken around the palace to keep people warm. He always worked in ashes and soot and smoke and filth way, way down in that basement. Well, the king then put on the garments of a poor man, descended the dark, damp cellar stairs, and came down to where the man was seated in a pile of ashes. He was called a fire man, appropriately, and he was tending to his fires. The king just sat down beside him, dressed in rags himself, and just started talking. When it was time to eat, the fireman produced some coarse black bread, a little bit of water, and shared it with his friend who had just come. When the shah went away, he decided to come back. Day after day after day after day, again and again. Why? Because his heart was filled with sympathy that eventually was demonstrated to that man in this longing just to be there to share a little bit of his common bread and his common life. He gave the man some sweet counsel from his wisdom and experience. And this poor man opened the whole heart of his life and loved his friends so kind and so wise. And he thought so poor like me. Well, at last... The emperor thought, I, I can't keep this up. <laughs> i got to tell him who I am. So I will tell him, and then I'll ask him what gift he would like from me now that we're friends. So he said, you think I'm poor, but I'm not. I'm the Shah. I'm your emperor. What would you like? Well, he expected the man to petition him for some great thing, but he sat simply gazing in wonder and love. The king said, do you understand what I've told you? I can make you rich. I can make you noble. 
I can give you a city. I can give you anything you want. What do you want? The poor man replied, according to the story, Yes, my Lord, I understand. But what is this you have done to leave your palace and your glory to sit with me in this dark place to partake of my coarse bread, to care whether my heart is glad or not. Even you can give nothing more precious than that. On others you may bestow rich presents, but to me you have given the greatest present of all. You have given yourself. It only remains to ask one thing, and that is you never withdraw your friendship. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm with you always. He's our friend. He's come, left the glories of heaven and all the riches, became poor even to dying for our sins and became our friend. Why did he do that? Because of his great love for us. Well, that story is somewhat analogous, kind of parabolic to the gospel. It's just what Jesus did. A king who came down to dwell among common men to give them his life and his friendship. And that's what's stated in our verse You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If that don't throw your heart, you're about one breath away from dying. If you're a Christian, that ought to excite you today. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? If you want to live a life of giving, not just money, that's an an indicator. Larry Bouquette made it so well known. The outward giving of money is just a revelation of what's in the heart. If you want to live a life of giving, of your whole life, Jesus Christ is the greatest example. Learn of him. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 11. You that are needing rest, heavy laden, come to me. Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you'll find rest. The one song you sang this morning reminded me of a song that... um, My wife and I used to sing. I'm not going to sing it for you, I promise. I'd clear this place out very quickly. But we sang a song called uh, All That I Have Is Jesus. The words go something like this. Should I at the gates of heaven appear to answer the challenge, what claim hast thou here? What hast thou to offer? Yea, what is your plea? With blessed assurance, my answer would be all that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. My sins, they are many, my virtues are few, but the blood of my Savior will carry me through. When Christ in my place died on Calvary's tree, hallelujah, that opened God's heaven for me. All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. He's a glorious Savior. Let us worship him. 
in this place and throughout the week because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for allowing us once again to rehearse the good news. And it is the best news of all. Father, we can turn on our televisions and our smartphones and we can get news reports. And it's all so, it's troubling, it's unsettling, but there's one, one news, one good news that never changes. That's why Christians can sing with a songwriter. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. Thank you, Jesus, that you left heaven's glory, came to earth, died in our place so that we could have riches through you. Be glorified in our lives. Anyone here who's not a Christian, Father, work in their hearts today as well. In Jesus' name, amen.